0: All right, you guys can go ahead and have a seat, those of you who are here. Well, again, I want to say welcome to H2O, those of you joining us here at our downtown venue, and those of you joining us online. We're so excited that you're with us as we continue through our Advent series that we're calling A Simple Christmas. And so um, in my house, uh, I hear the question, how many more days until Christmas every single day? hundred times over, at least. So I tried to um, find a picture from my life, That would capture the essence of the Advent season and the waiting and the exhilaration of Christmas. And so, um, an image will appear behind me magically here in a second, or on your screens, and you will see my favorite Christmas picture ever. So, um, I'm the parent on Christmas morning that misses the moment, doesn't live in the moment, but takes 9,000 pictures. And so, I'm so glad I do that because I captured this moment when Mason, this was years ago. he got a Nintendo Wii, and this is him opening the games. That's how we told him, right? We did the classic parent thing, wrap up the games, give him the games, voila, big surprise, you're getting a Nintendo Wii. Anyway, um, this was his reaction. And so I'm like, man, this is Advent. This is the, this is the end of Advent. All of Advent leads to that, mo- well, he's not there anymore, that moment where it's just sheer exhilaration at the birth of Jesus. But I don't have an image for all the days leading up to that, if, if I were to try to do that, it would probably look a little bit more like a video montage that's like, like on a 10-hour loop of my kids every day saying, how many more days till Christmas? How many more days? How many more days? And I don't know why for the life of us, Tiffany and I have never bought like a countdown calendar thing. And so we just get peppered every day with the question, how many more days? Our kids are so excited, longing for, waiting, trying to be patient, but struggling with it. For Christmas morning. And you know, it's funny because Advent, the whole season, and Christmas in general is really us wrestling with the question, what are we longing for? Advent is supposed to stir our hearts for the things that we want, the things that we're waiting for. That's the whole point of the season, right? And so, I think all of us have things in our lives that we want, but we don't yet have. We all have things that we're waiting for. For God to do in us, right? We're waiting for God to make known something to us. God, if you could just tell me this, if you could just give me insight, if you could just chart this path for me, I'd be so grateful. We're waiting for God to provide something for us. God, if I just had this thing, if I had this, it it would help me. Help me worship you. Help me know you, right? Help me be in closer relationship with you. We're waiting for God to heal something in us. Something that's broken. And we wish that we'd be further along than what we actually are. And so I think 2020, can we say this? 2020 has been like a banner year of waiting, of having to wait. Um, How are we doing at the waiting? I think that's what I want us to, to really wrestle with this morning. How are we doing at the waiting? Can I tell you, for me, I'm struggling. My family moved here. We sense God leading us back to this place. We were sent out about 11 years ago to help plant a church. God led us back here. We're here for about six, seven months, and then a global pandemic hits. We're trying to put down roots. We're trying to get firmly established in this new place, and the pandemic just seems like it's totally, perfectly designed to make that really, really hard. And so we're waiting. We're waiting on God, and there's 10,000 other things that we're all waiting for in this room, right? See, Advent leads us to our deepest desires. It reveals our deepest desires, and then it invites us, here's the hard part, to wait on them. That's the excruciatingly beautiful thing about Advent. It helps us to see what our greatest desires are, and then it invites us to sit and to wait for them. And when we look at the church calendar, which we don't follow that super closely here at H2O, we're a little little loose with it. But if you think about Lent, the season of Lent, it's meant to teach us how to suffer. That's the point of Lent. Easter is to teach us how to hope. Pentecost is to teach us how to be sent, how to be on mission with God. And Advent teaches us to wait. And waiting is really hard, isn't it? It's really difficult. When I think about the, the scene into which Jesus was born, I think, man, the people of God had been waiting for centuries for the Messiah. Right? The Old Testament prophets had spoken of this Messiah who would come, the one who would redeem Israel, who, the one upon his shoulders would the government be laid the one who would bring freedom, who would usher in God's kingdom, God's reign on earth, the one who would make all the nations see that Israel's God is the true God. And they waited and waited and waited. Generations passed. And that's the scene into which Jesus was born. God's people, the Jewish people, they suffered awful oppression from Rome. Physical persecution heavily taxed, kept poor. The high priests, the people who were supposed to lead God's people, were puppets of Rome. There was no recorded prophecy for some 400 years, and there were echoes of a Messiah, right? There were these promises that one would come, and God's people clung to them, but I have to believe that they were losing hope. I know that I would be losing hope. And so I wonder, maybe 2020, for all of its difficulty for all of the things that we've lost, all the frustrations that we've experienced. Maybe it's, it's helping us to understand, maybe even relate to a little bit better the world into which Jesus was born, to a world waiting and waiting and struggling with hope. I wonder if we'll be able to grasp the wonder and the exhilaration of Christmas in a new way this season. They were waiting And maybe more than ever, we are waiting. And so Advent at its core is an invitation to wait on God. In my devotional time, uh, first day of of Advent, I'm going through a a plan, and it led me to Isaiah 64 as one of the scripture readings. And I read it, and I have not stopped reading it. Almost every single day since then, I have read Isaiah 64. The Lord will not let me stop reading Isaiah 64. And so I just want to read it to you guys, at least a, a portion of it, because I think it it beautifully captures this excruciating angst of a people waiting for God to intervene. It's almost like the, in some way, Isaiah 64 is a little bit of a glue to hold together that ancient world in which it was spoken, and then our contemporary modern world right now that's struggling with waiting. And so as I read it, I want you to think about your own longings. I want you to think about your unmet desires. I want you to think about the frustrations, the pain, the losses that this last year has brought. What is it that you want, that you're longing for, that God has not yet given to you? Let me read Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Anyone prayed like that? Since COVID started, I have. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. And have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Do you see the angst in this passage? Do you see this kind of excruciating waiting on God to do something? If I could summarize it in three statements, my paraphrase of Isaiah 64, one to nine goes like this. Number one, God, do something. Rend the heavens, come down. Don't you know that when you do that, stuff happens. Good stuff happens when you do that. So could you do that again right now? Number two, we know that we haven't been faithful to you, God. We know we haven't been, but please, please do something. We know that we are sinners. And the third thing I see is, Have you forgotten us? God, have you forgotten us? That's that's my prayer life lately. I wonder if it's been yours. So again, Advent is this invitation in the midst midst of that excruciating waiting, uh, uh, yeah, waiting to, to wait on God. To wait on God. And what I want to do today with Isaiah 64 kind of setting the scene of what God's people would have been feeling, and living into at the birth of Jesus, I want to look at the story of two people from the Christmas narrative in Luke chapter 1, a man named Zechariah and a woman named Elizabeth, and they were waiting. They they were waiting in more ways than one, and I want us to learn from them. I want us to see how they waited and then get an invitation, perhaps, from the Holy Spirit on how we might wait and how that waiting shapes us. Did you know that the Christmas narrative in the Bible is full of people who are just waiting on stuff? All these people who are waiting, right? All of Israel, all of God's historic people, the Jewish people, they're waiting for the Messiah more than anything else that's hanging over them. We know one day he will come. They are waiting for Messiah. Elizabeth, who we're gonna read about today, is waiting to have a baby. She's never been able to to conceive. Zechariah, her husband, will learn, is waiting to speak. He's gonna not be able to speak for a long time. We're gonna read about that. Simeon is waiting to see the Messiah. He was promised that he would not die until he saw Messiah. And Anna, the prophet, is waiting and waiting on God's promises, going every single day to the temple to pray that God would do this thing. And Mary is betrothed and waiting to get married. It's a whole bunch of people who are waiting. So I wanna talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth because they're the parents of John the Baptist who paves the way for Jesus, and they embody the waiting of God's people. It's like these two, kind of in a nutshell, embody the waiting and the experience of having to wait of all of God's people. And my hope is that as I read their story, I I want us to remember that these are real people. They had emotions. They cried. They laughed. They wept. They dreamed. They experienced loss and frustration. They're people just like us. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 5. I'll read a little bit, comment on some stuff, read again, and that's how we'll do it. Luke chapter 1 verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old so to be a priest would have been a high honor you know it among God's people high honor to be a priest we know that they're both righteous we know that they walk with God blamelessly but they have no kids it's important for us to remember that in that culture in that context that would have been seen as a punishment from God a curse some sort of terrible reality that they were not able to produce offspring. You're pitied. At best, at worst, people are going to whisper and think maybe there's something wrong with you. You've been disobedient. God is angry at you, so you haven't been able to conceive. Can you imagine the years of waiting and waiting? If that's your worldview, right? Right? and you don't produce a child. Can you imagine the agony of that? Will this ever happen? Right? They had to wonder that. And all the people whispering, how can this guy be a priest? Can't even produce a child. Verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now, this is a a wild, crazy scene. So Zechariah would have only done this a few weeks out of the year. It was not something that he did often. And to have incense duty was even more unlikely to happen. We read that they would cast lots for that duty. And he got it. It fell to him. So he was in the room next to the Holy of Holies, where God would visit his people. Incredibly sacred space. In an incredibly sacred moment, an angel shows up. Verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you were to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, for your prayer has been heard. I don't think he stopped praying. I mean, we'll never know. I don't know. Did did he ever stop praying that they would conceive a child? Maybe, maybe not. What we can be more confident of is that he would have never stopped praying for God to do what he promised to do through his prophets. He would have prayed for the Messiah to come, for God to set the world to to right, for all the world to see that Israel's God is the God. He would have never stopped praying for that. Look what happens, verse 15. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. This is John. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so now when Zechariah is hearing this, he's thinking, oh my gosh, this is huge. We are not only having a child, but it's going to be the forerunner, the one that the prophet said would come before the Messiah. Right? Malachi 3.1 says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. There were all these rumblings, these prophetic rumblings of one who would come before the Messiah, who would clear the way. And this angel who's going to identify himself as Gabriel here in a second says, Zechariah, your son will be that person. Can you imagine the emotion? Can you imagine the disbelief, the complete shock of that? We're going to read about that here in a second. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Which is kind of a way of saying, like, can you give me a sign? Will you you do something to really prove that this is going to happen? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Sidebar, whole sermon on this. Not going to do it right now, though I'm really tempted. Be careful when you ask God for a sign. This might be what you get. It's not always what you think it's going to be. It might hurt. might be painful. So he wants a sign, right? Lots of people. We all want a sign. There's disbelief. There's doubt in Zechariah. And so Gabriel gives him a sign, right? Until this comes to pass, you will not be able to speak. I'm going to make you mute. And here's the thing that I think of. It just adds to his waiting, right? He's been waiting his whole life for a Messiah. He's been waiting to have a child, and now he's going to have to wait even more to be able to speak. It's like God is intensifying this man's waiting, right? It's crazy. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them, right? There's the sign. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Here's the crazy thing. Can you imagine he walks out of that place? All these people are wondering, dude, why did it, it took you a long time. What happened in there? Something must have happened. And he literally can't speak. Can you imagine trying to explain that without words? Oh yeah, I saw Gabriel and he said, you know, that whole forerunner to the Messiah, that's going to happen and I'm, it's, it's going to be our kid. This thing that our ancestors have been waiting for for centuries, it's about to go down right now, but he can't say it. Can you imagine this man's waiting? It's got to be excruciating. And so the first thing I want us to see, just two things from this story for us to take away. The first thing is that waiting exposes our desperate need for God, right? It has a way of reminding us of our powerlessness. It ends the myth that we can engineer whatever reality we want, right? We can, we can engineer whatever kind of outcome we want. If we just do the right things, if we work hard enough, we can get what we want. And there's something about waiting that just totally takes that away. And what's laid bare is our desperate state before God. We're powerless. We're utterly dependent on God. And waiting helps us come to that truth. And in that way, it's a gift. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I try to to quote him in every sermon unashamedly. He said this, not all can wait. Certainly not those who are satisfied, contented, and feel like they live in the best of all possible worlds. Those who learn to wait are uneasy about their way of life, and yet they have seen a vision of greatness in the world of the future and are patiently expecting its fulfillment. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. So you can't do Advent if, if you just think, like, you're living your best life now. There's pain in this world. There's struggle. We're waiting. It's difficult. And what happens in that waiting is that we glimpse our need for God and our longing for him grows. That's the beautiful thing about waiting, right? We can get angry. We can get impatient. We can turn our backs on God and pout about it. Or we can sit with him in the waiting, and what happens is that our longing for him grows. We don't just want the things of him and the things he can do for us, but we end up just wanting him more of him in our lives. And more than that, even in addition to that, our hope for a world set to right starts to really intensify in our hearts. We recognize that this world is jacked up and that Jesus is coming back to set it right. So we're going to skip way ahead. By the way, that's the beauty of Advent. That's the beauty of Advent, that as we sit and we wait, these longings come alive in us. For God for his world to be made right that's the beauty of Advent so we're gonna skip way ahead um the baby has been born John the Baptist has been born to Elizabeth and Zechariah and Zechariah gets his his voice back there's this whole thing where they should have named him Zechariah as was the custom named after the father they didn't do that they named him John because that's what the angel told them to do and that caused a big ruckus anyway we're skipping all of that for the sake of time and in verse 67 we're gonna see the response of Zechariah to the birth of his son His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. These are the first words that pour out of this man's mouth. He has not been able to speak for months. And look what comes out. Look at the very first thing that comes out of his mouth. It's amazing. It's been brewing inside of him for nine months. And I read it and I think these are the words of a man who has been with God, who has experienced deep fellowship with God in his waiting and in his suffering. A scholar I read said that Zechariah is literally referencing dozen, two, maybe upwards of even three dozen Old Testament passages, stories, and themes in his song. He bursts out, this is a song. Second thing I want us to see is that waiting anchors the promises of God deep within us. It anchors the promises of God. How did he do it? He went from doubting, from disbelieving, to this amazing, amazing prophetic word. He remembered the promises of God. All of his waiting for Messiah, for a child, for the ability to speak, and it did something profound in his heart. Guys, there is a hunger and there is a hope that I think only comes in the waiting, that only comes when we have to wait on God. We can say all day long, right? I think we know this intuitively, right? We can say all day long, yeah, we love God. We love God more than anything else in this life, right? And we have hope in God, we trust God. We trust that he will do what he said he will do. We trust that he will fulfill his promises in us. We can say that all day long and then the moment comes, right? The seasons of life come where he doesn't do it, not on our timeline, not in the way that we want him to, and he asks us to wait, and that longing for him, that love of him really gets tested, and it's a beautiful thing. Lewis Smead's a New Testament um, scholar and pastor, uh, passed away recently. He said, waiting is the hardest work of hope. It's the hardest work of hope. It is a work of hope, but it's just the hardest part. So again, I want to ask, what are you longing for? What are you waiting for God to do? What are you waiting for him to provide you? Let me say this, in this little memorable phrase that I hope haunts you in this coming week. Don't waste your waiting. Don't waste it. Let it humble you. Let it create in you a hunger for God. Let it remind you of the promises of God. Let it remind you that your greatest need, your greatest desire is him and him alone. I want to end where we started in Isaiah 64, 4. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Who acts who acts. This is not ultimately a story about a man, Zechariah. It's the story about a God who fulfills every single one of his promises, who does every single thing that he says he will do. This is a story of the faithfulness of God. Our God is a God who does not forget us. He does not abandon us, even in our sin. He came to us, We rebelled, right? We set ourselves up as our own gods. We set ourselves up as his enemy. And we said, no, we're going to do it our way. And still he came. And we sit at a different moment in history, right? Jesus has been born. Spoiler alert. Hope I didn't ruin Advent for you. But he he will be born and we'll celebrate that here very soon. We're not waiting for his birth. We're waiting for his return. He's promised he will come back. He's promised that he will set this world to right, right, that every tear will be wiped away and that his kingdom will come in fullness and we will live with him for all of eternity. Will we wait on God? Just wonder what what if all the things, the little things, the big things that we're waiting for God to do for us, what if they got swallowed up by this desire for him to return? That they would lead us to that greatest longing that we have. He has not forgotten us. He's given himself to us. He will come back for us. May we wait with ever increasing anticipation for the day when our faith shall be made sight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we ask God, would you by the power of your Holy Spirit grant us the endurance, the vision of the patience to wait on you. Lord, even as we move into this time of worship and communion, would we surrender all of those things? Would we declare them in our hearts, those things that we want that we're waiting on you to do? And would we rank all of them below our desire to know you, to walk intimately with you? God, would you stir in us a greater hunger for you and for your kingdom?